Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 8, verse 12. You should be both encouraged and afraid that I'm going to preach a whole sermon on just one verse. This one statement by Jesus is so big that I just... It's like, it doesn't make sense to me to try and cover the whole paragraph and this whole statement. So we'll just deal with this one thing that Jesus says in verse 12 of, I am the light of the world. So let's start by reading this verse together. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Oh Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your truth. Thank you for giving us this truth. And Father, we pray that as we look into this statement that you make, this claim that you have, that we would understand it with our minds, with the wisdom of the ages we would grasp the fullest meaning of these words that you have spoken in our minds and that from there they would move to our hearts to impact what we understand about you and what we believe and how we see you and how we embrace you as our Savior. And that from there they would reach into our very souls, igniting the joy of praise and the confidence of walking in your light. And we pray this, Lord, believing that you desire to give good gifts to your people and that we are your children. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in verse 12 of chapter 8. And it says here at the very beginning, again, Jesus spoke to them. And it raises the question, so where and when is this? Here in verse 12. Well, as you remember from last week, verses 1 through 11 are inserted here, but they don't fit in this narrative that's going on in the temple. And so verse 12 picks back up with verse 52. And so what's happening is Jesus is still in the temple. In fact, it's still most likely, well, it's probably Sunday, the eighth day of the festival, right? The Feast of Tabernacles ran for eight days. It ran from Sunday to Monday. Normally, a feast would run from Saturday to Saturday, Sabbath to Sabbath. But with the Feast of Tabernacles, God commanded them to stay an extra day and celebrate eight days of the festival with this idea of the eighth day was a day of remembering to stay with the Lord, not just jump back into normal life, but you add an extra day and you're supposed to think about this as remaining with the Lord an extra day. And so most likely, this is now Sunday, the eighth day of the feast, although it still could be Saturday, the great day of the feast, as was happening at chapter 7, when Jesus says the words, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his hearts will flow rivers of living water. It still could be the same day he says that statement, later in the evening. 
In fact, that's probably the day that makes the most sense in terms of this particular moment because Jesus' words, I am the light of the world, are tied to a very specific moment in the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, as part of the celebration of it, there was what's called the light ceremony, right? If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the water ceremony and drawing water out of the Pool of Shalom and pouring it into the altar. Well, they also had something called the light ceremony as part of the Feast of Tabernacles, and this occurred in the evening period each day. Everyone would gather into the court of women in the temple, and here there were these four giant columns that held up a menorah-like device or a, a bowl-like device. It's unclear exactly, and archaeologists haven't been able to differentiate exactly how this looked. So it either had a menorah-like look to it or just a giant bowl sitting on top of this column. And these were giant lamps, like an oil lamp. And they would light these lamps, and they would then burn all night on top of these very tall, four very tall columns. And each night as they lit them, there would begin this joyful celebration period. Each night, the leading men of the city would gather in the court of women, and then with individual handheld torches, each of them would dance in a joyous celebration all night long until dawn, when the giant lamps were then extinguished for the day. So get this picture in your mind. Everybody's gathered together in the court of women, which is a fairly large area. And they have these four giant columns with these bowl-like figures on the top of them. And they're lit with this massive oil flame that illuminated the entire temple to a very significant degree. It would be disingenuous to say it was the same as if it was daylight, that it was that bright, but it was very bright. And the Levites, I can remember who it was for a second, the Levites got out their instruments and the band played all night long, literally all night long. And the men were dancing with these handheld torches. The first time I read this, I was like, oh no, I ain't getting into that mess. Bunch of guys drinking wine, dancing with torches in their hands. No, I ain't doing that. But they would dance all night long in the Temple of the Court as part of the joyous celebration because if you remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was the one feast where God commanded them to be joyful throughout the whole feast. And so this was part of the joyful celebration. Now these lamps, I mentioned they were on very tall columns, they were 75 feet tall. So you have four 75 feet tall columns with these giant bowls on top with an oil flame. That's like a six to six and a half story building. In fact, little trivia for you, for a building to be called a high rise, it has to be greater than 75 feet because most of the ladder trucks can't go above a 75 foot height. So it's then classified as a high rise after 75 feet. And so these would be the equivalent of a high rise building in today's fire code. And all during the night, you had young men climbing up the ladders, carrying oil to these bowls to replenish them so that they burned all night long. Now, if you can think about this for a second, I do not want to be one of those young boys climbing the ladder, a 75-foot ladder, which is really more than 75 foot because it's got to lean against the thing itself, right? 
and I'm carrying a bucket of oil. I'm climbing a 75-foot ladder with a bucket of oil to a blazing, burning oil fire. And I'm going to get to the top of the ladder. I'm somehow going to pour this in there without falling off the ladder and getting burned. And I'm not splashing it on myself because if I do, then, well, you can imagine what I got. Okay, so just thinking about being one of those kids, like, no, thank you. Not really, but okay. But think about the amount of oil. Look, as modern day scholars, we have no clue how big these really were. But we're probably talking 10, 15 gallon of olive oil burning in these basins every night. And then they got to replenish them throughout the night to keep them burning. And they're going to do this for eight nights in a row. And remember, this is mid-October. You know, the days aren't long like they are in the summer, right? So these, these things are burning for probably 12 hours at least. This is a tremendous amount of oil that they're using. Just the logistics of pulling off an event like this are stunning to think about. And this is all just one aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then, more importantly than the logistics of pulling something like this off, these lamps that burned all night long and their size, and because of the location of the temple being on top of the mount with the city of Jerusalem below it and then with the Trafon Valley and then slowly rising up to a crest on the western hill of the city of Jerusalem, Because of where the temple was, these lamps are visible throughout the entire city. No matter where you went, well, almost no matter where you went in the city of Jerusalem, you could see the burning lamps, these giant burning lamps, and you could have the light illuminating the entire city area at night. In fact, one person wrote that There was no courtyard in the city of Jerusalem that the light did not penetrate into. And the light they generated here was for a purpose. It wasn't just to have a big fire show. The light they generated was a symbol and a reminder of God's pillar of fire and light that rested over the tabernacle each night of the wilderness wandering. Which also was a physical manifestation of God's presence among his people. From Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. His presence was with them 24-7. Then from Exodus chapter 40, this is when they first built the tabernacle and erected it for the first time. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. So now do you start to get a picture of what these giant lamps were representing? They represented the the light, the pillar of fire from the wilderness wanderings that was over the tabernacle every night and was upon them and representing his presence. And by using these giant lamps, they recreated this image of the fire resting over the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it recreated this same idea that we read here the verse 38. That the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. No matter where the tribes set up their tents, they could see the pillar of fire over the tabernacle. Now here during the Feast of Tabernacles, they can see the fire over the temple no matter where they are in Jerusalem. Well, that by itself is truly stunning and amazing to think about something, the spectacle of these giant lamps illuminating the entire city of Jerusalem and reminding everyone of that moment, of that time in the wilderness with a pillar of fire over the tabernacle. But there's more. Like so many rituals of a feast, they began to take on extra meaning over the years. Because if you remember, they were commanded to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles by the word of the Lord upon entering the promised land with Joshua and conquering it. So from the time of Joshua forward, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. But then it also began to represent something else as time developed. It also began to represent the Shekinah glory of God that filled Solomon's temple at his dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. Here, verse 10 and 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Doesn't that sound familiar? Oh, wait a minute. I just read that because that's what happened when they erected the tabernacle for the first time. And here we are with Solomon dedicating and opening the temple for the first time. And the same thing happens. The glory of the Lord and his light shining in such brightness and fullness that they can't even go forward with the rest of the activities planned for inside the temple itself. But it's more than even that, than the pillar of fire over the tabernacle in the wilderness and the glory of the Lord filling the temple, Solomon's temple, when he erected it and dedicated it and opened it for the first time. Because as the years progressed after that, these lamps burning each night of the feast also served as symbols of God's promise to send a great light to his people, the messianic promise of his great light from Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. That would be the region of Galilee. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. 
referring to the people of Israel. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. If you remember part of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the reasons it's so joyful, it was right after the harvest period. Verse 4 of chapter 9 in Isaiah, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, And of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. So it's with all of that background and all of that backdrop on that evening that Jesus stands up in front of the crowd there in the court of women, and proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, the importance of Christ saying he is the light of the world during the light ceremony is very, very important. Let's get this straight. Let's be clear. Let's be crystal clear. Jesus is saying a lot more than I am light. Everybody in the culture likes to talk about how much light they are. Jesus is not just saying I am light. He is saying I am the light. And by saying these words at this moment, Jesus is saying he is the fulfillment of God's promise to send a great light to his people. Everything promised in Isaiah chapter 9 is now brought to fruition in your eyes. You are seeing the great light promised in Isaiah chapter 9. And he's saying that to the people there in the temple. And at least some of them are starting to get that. Because the very next verse, the Pharisees jump on him with both feet. And we'll get to that next week, I promise. We're just going to enjoy and let this soak in for a moment that he is the light. And he's saying that the very light these giant lamps symbolize, he is it. He is the light that burned over the tabernacle each night in the wilderness. He is the light that filled the temple of Solomon on the day of its dedication. Just let that soak in. I am the light is a way bigger statement than we could possibly grasp without putting all of this together as the people standing there that day in the court of women, seeing him, hearing him, watching the torches burn or at least being prepared to be lit up. After studying this and trying to grasp all the symbolism and meanings of the light ceremony in Jesus' words, I have reached the conclusion that we could change the letters in Jesus' statement. 
there in verse 12. We, it's listed as a capital I and the lowercase a and m. But we could change them to the capital I, the capital A, and the capital M in the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He is making a statement that he is Yahweh. He is the great I am from Exodus chapter 3 when he says, I am the light of the world. And if it seems like I'm a little bit of taking a little bit of a stretch and some kind of Jesus fanboy here, when we get to verse 48 through 50 in a couple of months, he says, I am the I am. So it's not that big of a stretch to pull that statement that's coming in a few paragraphs and say that he's making the same claim here. In fact, I make the assertion to you that every time he makes one of the I am statements, he is saying, I capital A am capital A capital M. He's saying the same thing in all of them, not just here, not just in that one I am statement in the middle of chapter 8 or the end of chapter 8. He is the light. He is everything. I was When we were singing in Christ alone a few minutes ago, it struck me in thinking about coming up here to give you these words about Him being the light. The light. Not just a light, but the light. And then this stark contrast from verse 2 of In Christ Alone, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. What? The light? You mean the light? The one that shone over the tabernacle in the wilderness and the one that filled the Solomon Temple? The one promised in Isaiah chapter 9? You mean that light is going to crawl on a cross and bear the wrath of God for anybody? Are you kidding me? Are you serious? I mean, that's outlandish enough. But to say that he, the light of the world is going to crawl on the cross and bear the wrath of God for me? Are you serious? Do you really expect me to believe that? Yes, I do. I do really expect you to believe that. Because that's what he did. He made it clear who he was. And when you connect all the pieces together, you see the greatness and the glory of Jesus shining over the tabernacle in Moses' face, stunning the entire crowd in Jerusalem on the night, or the afternoon rather, that Solomon opened up the temple and his glory filled it, so much so that the priest couldn't go in. And then the hundreds, hundreds of years waiting for the promise of Isaiah to come to fruition that a great light would be shown in Galilee. And oh, by the way, just as a little aside, you remember at the end of chapter 7, the Pharisees were knocking Jesus because they're like, there's no such thing as a prophet that comes from Galilee. And then Jesus reminds them here that Galilee is the promise of a great light. So what are you saying, Pharisees? Are you saying that Isaiah is a chump and doesn't know what he's talking about? 
Not even they are so brazen to be that bold and to be that stupid. He just reminds them, yeah, you know, uh, remember that light thing coming from Galilee in Isaiah chapter 9? What are you going to do with that now, Pharisee? And he loves us enough to do this for us. I don't know about you, but my mind just immediately goes to the next question. So if he does this for us, what am I supposed to do with it? What he's done? Well, my answer is that we are to walk in the light. I mean, that's what John tells us in the beginning of chapter of the Gospel of John. We're called to walk in the light. But when we're called to walk in the light, it's not only in a sense of righteousness, like living in a Righteous way is to be in the light, not hiding in the darkness in sin and evil actions, but also in the sense of the light of the life living and shining within us. We are to walk in the light and we are to walk as a light to the Gentiles. This reminds us of Jesus' admonition in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? But Jesus' promise was, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We should walk as a light with the light of Jesus shining out from within us. Now, the whole thing about the eye is a Middle Eastern Semitic thing that takes a long time to explain, so just trust me when I say that in their world, to look into a person's eye was equivalent to look into their soul. When they say that word, you know, your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, it means you can look into the person's eye and you can see the content of their soul, whether it is light or dark. The other part about this, something else John tells us from the very beginning of his gospel. This is a very powerful light. So powerful that darkness cannot overcome it. Darkness cannot overcome this light. From John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Even today, with the darkness of our world and culture surrounding us, it still has not overcome his light. And no matter how dark it gets, it can't overcome the light. Thomas Mountain, John Bunyan are living examples for you that no matter how dark it gets, the darkness cannot overcome the light. They both faithfully stood to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, no matter how dark the hearts of men were around them, to do the terrible things that they were done to them as witnesses of the light. And that's true. I picked Mountain and Bunyan, and I could have picked literally hundreds of saints throughout the ages from Irenaeus who was a disciple of John in Ephesus 
and died a brutal death, proclaiming the, the life in Jesus as he died under a Roman sentence of execution? Through all the ages, even up to today, in fact, there's a whole book just talking about that called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And there's no shortage of martyrs today, which reminds us that the darkness in our culture is not really that dark when you compare it to the reality that there are actual, literal martyrs today in other countries. Somewhere today, someone who proclaimed faith in Christ and refused to renounce him lost their head. Not even then can the darkness overcome the light. And then lastly, when I think about how to respond to all this, is remember who is giving you the light of life. It is the great I am himself who speaks this life into you and through you. It would be enough. Right? The Hebrew song from Passover, it would be enough if he had just taken us out of slavery. It would be enough if he had just brought us across the Red Sea. It would be enough if he had just given us manna. It would be enough if he had just given us water from the rock. It would be enough if he had just given us his covenant. And it would be enough if he just gave us the light to burn within us for our own self-sustaining joy and happiness. But just like the God of the wilderness who does more and more and more, so also Jesus does more and more and more. It's not just a light that burns within us for our own sustenance and joy. It is a light that burns within us so that we may speak life into those around us and those we interact with. Just let all this soak in for a minute. You have the light of life for your joy and for the hope of someone else's joy. one could make the argument metaphorically that we are these giant columns of lamps in the temple. We are the modern day equivalent of the four lamps burning in the court of women because we have the true light and we can give it to all so that they may see in the darkness, a darkness that cannot overcome this light. Live with the light of life burning within you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you so much that you give us this much. It would have been enough if you just gave us your love. It would be enough if you just gave us the Holy Spirit. But to give us the very light of life within us, and then to give it to us in such a way that it shines forth out from us so that your light pierces the darkness no matter where we walk. Glory, praise you, hallelujah, thank you. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Holy Spirit, for doing this for us and through us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.